the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a long conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. He, of course, is the teacher at the Downtown Bible Class. He's also pastor of Southwest Bible Church. We're going to talk about the coming of the Messiah and why it matters. I mean, we're in the 21st century. Who needs a Savior? We'll get into all of that when he joins us in the second hour of today's program. Well, December 15th, 1791 marks the ratification of our Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution and the rule of law it enshrines. Well, the Bill of Rights was inspired by three remarkable documents, John Locke's 1689 thesis, two treatises of government regarding the protection of property in the Latin uh, context or one's own life, liberty and estate, in part from the Virginia Declaration of Rights, authored by George Mason in 1776 as part of that state's constitution, and of course, in part, from our Declaration of Independence, authored by Thomas Jefferson. Although the Bill of Rights is commonly referred to as the first ten amendments of our constitution, it is important to distinguish these ten articles from amendments. Now, the former being an integral part of our Constitution, while the latter, over the course of our nation's history, having modified it. Well, because of that distinction, the addition of the Bill of Rights was hotly debated among our uh, founding fathers, the framers of our Constitution, many of whom argued that the mere reiteration of these innate and unalienable rights of man within the Constitution might imply that they are somehow subject to amendment as it granted by the state. Alexander Hamilton argued in Federalist Number 84, bills of rights in the sense and in the context in which they are contended for are not only unnecessary in the proposed Constitution, but would even be dangerous. They would contain various exceptions to powers which are not granted and on this very account would afford a colorable pretext to claim more than were granted. For why declare that things shall not be done which there is no power to do? On the other hand, George Mason was among the 16 of the 55 Constitutional Convention delegates who refused to sign because the document didn't adequately address limitations on what the central government had no power to do. Indeed, he worked with Patrick Henry and Samuel Adams against its ratification for that very reason. As a result of Mason's insistence, the first session of Congress incorporated those time, these 10 rather additional limitations upon the federal government for the reason outlined by the preamble of the Bill of Rights. The conventions of a number of the states having at the time of their adopting the Constitution expressed a desire in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its power that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added. And as extending the ground of public confidence in the government will best ensure the beneficent ends of its institution, end quote. Well, read in context, the Bill of Rights is both an affirmation of innate unalienable rights of man and a clear prescription upon any central government infringement on those rights. As oft trampled and abused as the Bill of Rights is by those who've sworn an oath to support and defend our Constitution, most notably judicial supremacists, or the despotic branch of Jefferson called the judiciary. 
Patriots must remain ever vigilant in order to sustain those rights. Once again, today, December 15th, 1791 marks the ratification of our Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. Well, the Electoral College electors from all 50 states formally convened on Monday to cast their votes for the presidency, and the result was as expected. Joe Biden defeated President Donald Trump 320, or rather 306 to 232. Well, interestingly, the number of votes exactly matched Trump's 2016 victory over Hillary Clinton. And while Biden plagiarized Trump in touting his EC victory as a landslide, the truth of the matter is that his um, margin of victory in the swing states was even smaller than that of Trump in 2016. Trump won by besting Clinton by 77,744 total votes in the swing states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, whereas Biden slipped by Trump by 42,918 votes combined in Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. Well, meanwhile, Trump is still refusing to concede defeat, arguing that some of his continued legal challenges have yet to be ruled on. That said, Trump has had little success in the courts, and it is all but impossible that there remains a genuine means for the president to remain in the White House. Trump's lack of concession clearly raised the ire of Biden, who blasted the president and Republicans in general following the Electoral College vote. He derided their legal challenges as an unprecedented assault on democracy while falsely asserting that no cause or evidence was found to reverse or question or dispute the results, end quote. Well, that is patently false. But by the way, Biden then talked of um, uh, this being the time to turn the page, to unite and to heal, which never happened in the last election. Well, Biden and the left spent four years assaulting democracy, as he put it, and denying Trump's legitimacy, and they continue to act as if Trump's presidency was a disaster. Well, the facts demonstrate the exact opposite, of course, and Biden's false characterization of the past four years does nothing to encourage Americans to come together. Yet he opined, in America, politicians don't take power, the people grant it to them. The flame of democracy was lit in this nation a long time ago, and we now know that nothing, not even a pandemic or an abuse use of power can extinguish that flame, end quote. Well, that's a rich statement dripping in irony and abject hypocrisy coming from the number two man in Barack Obama's White House, an administration that's uh, infamous for its abuse of power that initiated a deep state cabal in an attempt to oust a duly elected president and that actively sowed the seeds of divisiveness, identity politics, racial animus, that are currently roiling the nation today. That didn't begin with the current administration. What may have been the most obtuse comment by um, President-elect Biden, however, was his reference to the now more 300,000 Americans who have died as a result of contacting COVID-19. Biden continued to push the false narrative that Trump's response to the novel virus from China was an abject failure, even as the life-saving coronavirus vaccine developed in record time, thanks to Trump's Operation Warp Speed, was literally being delivered to all 50 states. Well, on a final note, despite Biden securing the uh, Electoral College vote, demonstrating that uh, a Democrat can still win an election uh, via the founder's well-designed system. Uh, One New York state elector believes she knows better, even if she registered uh, her vote for Biden, Hillary Clinton delivered the same uh, sore loser message. I believe we should abolish the Electoral College. She was uh, one of those electors casting her ballot and select our president by the winner of the popular vote, same as every other office. But while it still exists, I was proud to cast my vote in New York for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, she said. While it would be tempting to claim that Clinton's remarks demonstrates her abject ignorance of federalism, the truth is she knows exactly what federalism is and rejects 
rejects it because it serves as a roadblock to leftist elites' desire to perpetually run the nation without having to consider and be held accountable by voters in red states. Well, the bottom line, unless some massive unforeseen development occurs, Joe Biden will be inaugurated, the 46th president of the United States, on January 21st. So prepare. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Tuesday acknowledged Joe Biden as the president-elect for the first time. This is a day after the Electoral College cast their votes to make Biden's victory official. As of this morning, our country has officially a president-elect and a vice president-elect, McConnell said uh, this morning. The Electoral College has spoken. He continued, adding, today I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. The Electoral College uh, on Monday voted 306 to 232 for Biden over President Trump. Now, Mitch McConnell now joins a growing group of Republican senators who have admitted the president's defeat over the last several weeks, even as Trump himself has refused to concede the race and claimed he won a second term alleging widespread fraud. Well, President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will be sworn into office on the steps of the Capitol next month. But those who are planning his inauguration are urging Americans to stay home and limit gatherings during the event. Biden's planning committee for the first time stated definitively on Tuesday that he will be sworn into office on the west side of the Capitol, the location that has been used in recent years, and he will give an inauguration address from the the platform. But just about everything else is being reimagined. Other elected officials will be on the platform, but attendance will be limited. A parade of some sort will be staged, but it's likely to be more virtual than physical, featuring people from across the country much like the virtual roll call at the Democratic National Convention in August. It's unclear whether the traditional luncheon with members of Congress will be held after the swearing-in or whether President Donald Trump will host Biden at the annual, uh, the usual tea at the White House before the swearing-in. Biden's transition team is urging all Americans to stay at home, refrain from traveling, and to limit gathering during this inauguration. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. Just a reminder, in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist about the coming of the Messiah and why it matters. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Supreme Court today ruled in favor of a church in Colorado, as well as a Catholic priest and a rabbi in New Jersey, who challenged coronavirus restrictions on worship services in their states. Well, the court issued an unsigned order reversing lower federal court rulings that declined to block the restrictions on houses of worship in Colorado and New Jersey. And while the justices didn't rule the restrictions were improper, the Supreme Court did order the lower courts to re-examine them. Well, High Plains Harvest Church, a small Christian church north of Denver, argued that the coronavirus restrictions implemented by Democratic Governor Jared Paulus Uh, which limits the capacity at worship services in some areas to 25 percent or a maximum of 50 people, wrongly targeted indoor religious services, subjecting them to harsher rules and other activities such as retail shopping. Well, today, the in Colorado, rather, it is perfectly legal legal for hundreds of shoppers to pack themselves cheek to jowl into a Lowe's or other big box stores to patronize at any one of a thousand of other retail establishments that are not subject to to Decronian numeric limits. Barry Arrington, who's an attorney representing the church, said, well, the New Jersey challenge was brought by Father Kevin Robinson and Rabbi Yisrael Kopner. 
uh, who also argue that the state's restrictions on houses of worship are unconstitutional as they target religion unfairly. Well, the ruling comes after the high court ruled last month in favor of New York churches and synagogues that challenged Governor Andrew Cuomo's pandemic restrictions on worship services. In response, Colorado informed the Supreme Court that it altered um, the restrictions to remove capacity limits from all houses of worship at the time in response to the court's recent decision. So a decision in favor of churches not being singled out unfairly in the context of other retail outlets. Well, the United States COVID-19 death toll topped 300,000 on Monday. That's according to data from Johns Hopkins University. The same day vaccine distribution began in the country. Well, the U.S. has now averaged roughly 2,500 coronavirus deaths each day. And experts have expressed concern that the situation is likely to get worse before the vaccine becomes widely available to the public. We're in the time frame now that probably for the next 60 to 90 days, we're going to uh, to have more deaths per day than we had at 9-11 or we had at Pearl Harbor. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Robert Redfield said last week. Governor Kate Brown announced on Tuesday that 29 of the state's 36 counties are now at extreme risk of COVID-19 spread. This is a development that will bring added restrictions this week to several coastal counties. Well, two weeks ago, the state classified 25 counties as extreme risk of widespread coronavirus transmission, bestowing the highest of four risk levels based on a number of factors, including their population and the level of community spread, according to various metrics. Well, five coastal counties, Tillamook, Clatsop, Lincoln, Coos, and Curry have all been elevated to the highest risk level after state data showed continued spread during the most recent two-week monitoring. The changes go into effect December 18th. The entire Oregon coast is now classified as an extreme risk, which means indoor dining will be banned and certain indoor businesses like gyms and theaters must close. Indoor religious services in those counties are also capped at 25 percent capacity or 100 people, whichever is smaller. The state recommends that services are limited to one hour. Indoor dining remains open for non-extreme counties, though even low-risk counties such as Wallawa must cap occupancy at 50 percent. Multnomah County saw some of its metrics improve, such as the percentage of positive cases dropping by, or rather, to 7.2 percent, and total cases and per capita caseloads decreasing. However, the state's most populous county, uh, uh, county's positive case rate for the past two weeks remains at 498, more than twice the baseline metric for extreme risk. Washington County saw similar improvements, while Clackamas saw its cases per 100,000 residents increase slightly from 456 to 469. So we continue to see community spread across the state of Oregon. Well, Governor Kate Brown will convene a special session of the Oregon legislature at 8 a.m. Monday, December 21st, to address Oregonians' most pressing needs given the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, which have only been compounded by Oregon's horrific wildfires. The governor is asking the legislature to consider both critical policies and $800 million in relief to support Oregonians during a one-day special session on COVID-19 and wildfires. The governor said Oregonians are making tremendous sacrifices to prevent the spread of COVID-19, while the risk reduction measures we have put in place are working to slow the spread. Many Oregon families are struggling with the unemployment, housing, food insecurity, and paying their bills. And those most impacted are the same people who are often left behind, including rural, black, indigenous, Latino, 
uh, Asian Pacific Islanders and tribal communities, among others, I would add. I continue to call on Congress to pass another robust coronavirus relief bill to bring support to the American people, but those calls have not yet been heeded. It is clear that the states must act on their own to provide a bridge until federal help arrives. This is why I am calling on legislators from both sides of the aisle to come together in the best interest of the state. We must protect Oregonians now as we face some of the hardest days, whether by getting critical resources into the hands of those most in need, keeping a roof over people's heads and recognizing the incredible toll this virus is taking on small businesses and restaurants. Oregon must act to bridge the gap as we continue to wait to see the federal federal relief. I thank legislators for their work in addressing this critical issue next week, and I look forward to our progress. Well, included in the governor's budget priorities is aid for tenants and landlords, funding for vaccine distribution and contact tracing, wildfire prevention and community preparedness, and support for reopening schools. Well, trucks and cargo planes packed with the first of nearly three million doses of coronavirus vaccine fanned out across the country on Sunday as hospitals rushed to set up injection sites and their anxious workers tracked each shipment hour by hour. The distribution of the first federally approved vaccine marked the start of the most ambitious vaccination campaign in American history, a critical, uh, complicated feat that one top federal official compared to the Allied landing at Normandy during World War II. Well, now the United States is trying to turn the tide of battle against a virus whose out-of-control spread has killed Nearly 300,000 people ravaged the economy and upended millions of lives. Well, early on Sunday, the first boxes of a vaccine developed by Pfizer and BioNTech that received emergency approval from the federal regulators were packed in dry ice at a Pfizer plant in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Workers applauded as the first truck left the plant, the earliest wave of vaccines bound for distribution sites all across the fruited plain. Well, the Food and Drug Administration granted emergency use authorization to the first over-the-counter antigen test for COVID-19 that can be used at home in individuals ages two and up, including those not showing symptoms. Well, the approval comes a week after the agency approved another non-prescription at-home test, but that one requires samples to be sent to an outside lab. Well, with the LUM COVID-19 home test, patients collect a mid um, turbinate nasal swab to detect virus antigens. The test uses an analyzer that's connected with a software application on a smartphone to help users perform the test and interpret results uh, in as little as 20 minutes, according to the FDA press release. The test has boasted a 96% accuracy rate in positive samples taken from symptomatic people and 100% of negative samples in individuals with symptoms. In people without symptoms, the test correctly identified 91% of positive samples and 96% of negative samples. So this is um, this is hopeful. In other news, Attorney General William Barr announced his resignation on Monday, touting President Trump's record and accomplishments, despite what he called a partisan onslaught and relentless, implacable resistance. The president announced Barr's departure in a Twitter post, just had a very nice meeting with Attorney General Bill Barr at the White House. Our relationship has been a very good one. He has done an outstanding job, Trump tweeted. As per letter, Bill will be leaving just before Christmas to spend the holidays with his family, end quote. President Trump also tweeted a copy of Barr's resignation letter in which the attorney general praised the president and made the comments about Trump's constant opposition. 
Trump added Deputy Attorney General Jeff Rosen, an outstanding person, will become acting attorney general. Highly respected Richard Donoghue uh, will be taking over the duties of deputy attorney general. Thanks to you all. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, looking forward to a long conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist with Southwest Bible Church. He's also the teacher at the Downtown Bible Class. We're going to talk about the coming of the Messiah and whether or not we really need a Savior in the 21st century. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. There was some speculation as to whether or not the attorney general resigned or was encouraged to step away because uh, the attorney general apparently knew about the Hunter Biden probe for months. Trump says Barr is a big disappointment after the report confirming the AG knew about Hunter Biden's investigation. Um, Senator um, or rather observers say that voters and Congress should have been uh, should have known about the department's Hunter Biden investigation. Uh, at the time that the attorney general was aware and certainly prior to the election. Well, despite his resignation, Barr intends to stay on as attorney general as long as the president needs him. And as indicated just a few moments ago, the deputy attorney general will step in to take his place. Well, violent D.C. protesters demand Antifa rioters be released from jail. Apparently, a group of uh, protesters on Monday gathered outside of Washington jail to demand that Antifa rioters who were arrested at a weekend rally in the Capitol be released. A video shared online showed police spraying what appears to be pepper spray at protesters gathered outside the entrance to a jail. All Out D.C., a group that describes itself as a collective of D.C. anti-fascist activists, announced on Twitter a show that of support for the jailed protesters scheduled for Tuesday at noon. That's today, of course. Well, in other developments, D.C. police are investigating after a BLM, a Black Lives Matter sign, is torn and a banner is torched at an historic black church uh, following a pro-Trump rally. And mayhem in Washington, D.C., as Trump supporters uh, and Antifa clash left four dead or rather four stabbed and 23 arrested. Well, a two-year-old boy has been abandoned at a Mississippi Goodwill drop-off with extra clothes. A note identified the boy and a suspect has been arrested. Billionaire Bill Gates says lockdowns of bars and restaurants are appropriate as COVID-19 cases surge. Appropriate, maybe, but devastating, definitely. Wall Street firms are demonized or who were demonized by uh, Andrew Cuomo and de Blasio are ramping up their New York City exodus plans and Disney's shares fall more than 2 percent after analysts warn the company needs to do more after the coronavirus. California is filing a petition against Amazon seeking compliance in their COVID-19 investigation and a bipartisan group plans to unveil a $908 billion coronavirus relief proposal as the year end deadline looms. Well, we'll see whether or not they're successful. As I mentioned, Attorney General Bill Barr has resigned. In his letter, he included a word of thanks to the president. I am proud to have played a role in the many successes and unprecedented achievements you have delivered for the American people. Your record is all the more historic because you accomplished it in the face of relentless, implacable resistance. Well, the resignation comes after a tense weekend with the president, upset over the fact that news about Justice Department's inquiry into Hunter Biden did not come out until after the election. 
Uh, from the Hill, Barr's departure follows a string of other firings and resignations in the administration following the election. Trump fired Defense Secretary Mark Esper and Christopher Krebs, the top U.S. cybersecurity official. Others at the Department of Homeland Security have resigned, and Trump's communications director, Alyssa Farah, also recently left her position in the West Wing. The second paragraph of Barr's letter makes clear his understanding of allegations of Russia collusion in 2016, the election. The nadir of this campaign was the effort to cripple, if not oust, our administration with frenzied, baseless accusations of collusion with Russia. And finally, the Wall Street Journal writes, he took the job in a Washington marked by by no limits partisanship, knowing that he would be criticized no matter what he did. But he wanted to clean up a Justice Department that he rightly knew had been tainted by a corrupt FBI under James Comey and political appointees in both parties who lacked the courage, excuse me, or the tenacity to take responsibility for hard prosecutorial judgments. Well, as mentioned, Joe Biden has captured sufficient electoral votes to secure the presidency. The electoral votes from California put Biden over 270, the number needed to formalize his win in the hotly contested process. Mike Shirky, Senate GOP leader in Michigan, responded to the tensions and challenges surrounding the process, saying our feelings, our desires and our disappointments are subordinate to the health of our democracy and the will of the majority. Well, the shape of the incoming cabinet of Biden administration is continuing. And Senator John Thune says, I understand there are people who feel strongly about the outcome of this election. But in the end, at some point, you have to face the music, he said. And I think once the Electoral College settles the issue today, which was yesterday, it's time for everybody to move on. Well, as the vaccine rolls out, an ABC poll shows that there's a growing willingness among Americans to receive it. A nurse in New York was among the first to receive the shot, and health workers throughout the U.S. were also set to receive the newly authorized vaccine developed by Pfizer, Inc. and BioNTech Southeast. Um, Pfizer shipped vaccine vials uh, out Sunday, and hospitals and health departments across the country received them yesterday. From ABC, they point out that more than 8 in 10 Americans say that they would receive the vaccine, with 40% saying they would take it as soon as it's available to them, and 44% saying they would wait a bit before getting it. Only 15% said they would refuse the vaccine entirely in the new survey. Meanwhile, 93% of elderly Americans are willing to receive the vaccine, with more saying they will uh, get it right away, rather than further down the line. 80% of U.S. adults under 30 are willing to get the vaccine, but they're more likely to say they'll wait 50% rather than getting it right away at 30%. Well, 2020 has been a brutal year for sports as NFL ratings continue to plummet. I'm not sure it has much to do with the pandemic as it has to do with other social issues, but leaving networks to restructure deals with advertisers. Wall Street Journal points out that TV networks are feeling the strains of disappointing NFL ratings as they're forced to restructure deals with advertisers to make up for the smaller audience. And their opportunity to make money off remaining games during a lucrative holiday season narrows. Well, some networks also have considered letting advertisers pay less for commercials during NFL games and other programming than they originally pledged. A large amount of the remaining commercial time available in games is being given to marketers as compensation for their underperformance so far, leaving little ad time that can be sold in the final quarter of the season. Well, last NFL season, not including the playoffs, networks that broadcast the games generated some $3.6 billion in TV ad revenues. The New York Times said in 2020, the sports industry in North America was as... um, as they put it, devastating, definitely. Well, Wall Street firms are demonized, uh, who were demonized by uh, Cuomo, 
and de Blasio are ramping up their New York City exit uh, strategy uh, as well. Well, is Black Lives Matter having buyer's remorse with Biden and Harris? From the story in the New York Post, Black Lives Matter is putting a forth, uh, a forthcoming Biden-Harris administration on notice for failing to respond to a meeting request from the group. Well, from BLM's Instagram, as the organization leading the largest global social justice movement, we demand a seat at the table. To ignore us and the 64,000 of you who have signed our petition is to ignore a gen- Uh, our generation's most pressing demands for transformative justice. Well, the Electoral College only sat yesterday. It's confirmed today. So maybe give him a minute. We'll see what happens. A Daily Wire reports that we want something for our vote. BLM co-founder Patrice Cullors uh, points out uh, we want to be uh, heard and our agenda to be prioritized. Well, after 32 days, they've yet to hear back from uh, the new administration. Fox News says for the newly elected administration that ran on promise of racial justice to ignore um, our ongoing request to meet with them and refuse us a seat at the table and uh, is demeaning to our movement. Black Lives Matter Global Network said in an email to supporters on Thursday and urging activists to make noise in demeaning. Uh, it's demeaning to our hurt and trauma. It's demeaning to the countless times we took our protests to the streets to call for justice for our black brothers and sisters uh, taken from us at the hands of police. So now it's a wait and see how or when or if, for that matter, Biden and Harris respond. And a bit of a throwback, Trump was mocked for saying we could have a vaccine in 2020. NBC, in fact, writing in May, beginning with a quote from Dr. Stanley Plotkin, in the best of circumstances, we should have a vaccine or let's say vaccine between 12 to 18 months, he said. Whether those circumstances will be the best or not, we don't know. Well, 12 months uh, will have been May of 2021. And right now, the vaccine is in the hands of um, states all across the fruited plain. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, a long conversation with Scott Gilchrist about the coming of the Messiah and why or if it matters. That's coming up at 5 o'clock. Well, Joe Biden will nominate former rival Pete Buttigieg for transportation secretary. That's according to multiple reports. Buttigieg ran for president against Biden in the Democratic primaries and was formerly the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Buttigieg emerged as the winner of the 2020 Iowa caucuses, but failed to gain traction as the primaries continued. Biden has praised Buttigieg and even compared the former mayor to his late son, Beau. I know that may not mean much to most people, but to me, it's the highest compliment I can give any man or woman, Biden said back in March. Well, in a um, in an election debrief, um, Despite record turnout, 80 million Americans didn't vote. That's according to NPR. And a judge released a Dominion audit report, which claims the system is designed, and that's in quotes, to create systematic fraud. Regardless of the real cause of the 6,000 vote error in Michigan's um, Antrim County, the point is that if this can happen in one place, it can happen any place. It undermines the credibility of not just this election, but future elections. The potential for fraud needs to be eliminated. And if that means Dominion ultimately gets forced out, so be it. So it's not going to have an impact on this election's outcome, but it certainly is worrying. Worrying In the Georgia runoff, the mail-in ballot requests top one million as early voting begins there. And Georgia candidate uh, John Ossoff says the federal government should ensure illegal immigrants receive good wages. 
Okay. Government and politics. Michigan Representative Paul Mitchell is leaving the GOP over Trump's attempt to overturn the election. And special counsel John Durham is expanding his team with prosecutors saying they're making excellent progress. Well, the New York Times has not covered the Eric Swalwell honey trap scandal in a single time. And the Times um, slams a writer for failing to call Jill Biden doctor. This is the New York Times as well. Keep in mind, though, the New York Times referred to the um, world-renowned Dr. Ben Carson as simply Ben Carson for years. December 21st, 2014, a conservative think tank recently sent Ben Carson, no doctor there, September 1st, 2015, the spotlight rarely found Ben Carson this summer, no doctor there. March 2nd, 2016, Ben Carson, the only Republican to have once threatened to lead uh, the lead of Donald Trump, no doctor there. January 11th, 2017, now Mr. Carton, Carson, Mr. Carson, not doctor, tapped by President-elect Donald Trump to become the new Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. May 25th, 2017, Ben Carson, the head of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, no doctor there. May 5th, 2018, before Ben Carson accepted President Trump's offer, no doctor there. May 13th, 2018, uh, the contempt of the Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson for the Fair Housing Act. No doctor there. So I'm not sure on what grounds they're moaning about Dr. Jill Biden not being referred to as doctor. Well, the media is scrambling to unremember their dismissals of Trump's Operation Warp Speed win. And that will all be left in the dust, I'm certain, after the inauguration. Biden will get the credit for what happens next. Just one in five with COVID passes it down to others in their household data show. And Governor Cuomo is destroying New York City's restaurant industry. And yet New York City could face full shutdown beyond indoor dining. Mayor de Blasio is now warning. Well, Portland's autonomous zone, as the nation's press is referring to it, is removing barricades after Portland's weak-kneed mayor and police chief apologize. And a California church is displaying a nativity scene that incorporates Black Lives Matter. Oregon's newly elected secretary of state has violated the governor's order on gatherings. And a four-year-old girl donated $600 of bake sale earnings to a local food bank. On this day in history, 1791, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution, goes into effect following ratification by Virginia. 1890, Sioux Indian Chief Sitting Bull and 11 other tribe members are killed in Grand River, South Dakota, during a confrontation with the Indian police. 1938, groundbreaking for the Jefferson Memorial takes place in Washington, D.C., and President Franklin D. Roosevelt takes part in the ceremony. 1961, former Nazi official Adolf Eichmann is sentenced to death by an Israeli court for crimes against humanity. Eichmann would be hanged five and a half months later. 1978, President Jimmy Carter announces that he would grant diplomatic recognition to communist China on New Year's Day and sever official relations with Taiwan. 1989, a popular uprising begins in Romania that results in the downfall of dictator Nicolae Ceausescu. I have to tell you, the church played a major role. It wasn't a political role. It wasn't a military role. It was a role in which the church prayed him and his uh, leadership team out of power. It's a fascinating story if you are unfamiliar with it. 1995, European Union leaders meeting in Madrid, Spain, chose euro as the name of the new single European currency. 2013, 
Nelson Mandela is laid to rest in his childhood hometown, ending a 10-day mourning period for South Africa's first black president. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, former FBI Director James Comey admits on Fox News Sunday that the recently released Justice Department Inspector General's report on the launch of the FBI's Russia investigation and their use of the surveillance process showed that he was overconfident when he defended his former agency's use of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and a major understatement. We've been talking about the Electoral College. Republican electors in four states on December 14th uh, that they would uh, said they would cast their procedural votes for President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence. The latest update contesting the results of the 2020 election. Republican electors in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona all said they voted for Trump. It comes as their states formally appointed Democratic electors who voted for Democrat Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris. Well, yesterday, um, rather today, really, is the key day in the certification of the election of President-elect Joe Biden as electors from individual states pledged to the candidates uh, assembled on Monday. The tabulation of the Electoral College took place. Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution says Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. Well, that day was December 14th. It's dictated by an obscure Byzantine 1887 law, the Electoral Count Act. Well, Congress passed the legislation after the disputed 1876 presidential election between President Rutherford Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Well, electoral votes were far from certain in Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana, and here in Oregon, uh, and were and um, that was in 1876. There was a spirit to, um, uh, rather, a sprint to settle the Electoral College tally before Inauguration Day, 1877. Congress created an electoral commission to resolve the issue. In that era, the president assumed office on March the 4th. Well, the Electoral Count Act dictates that states choose the electors no more than 41 days after the election. And this is uh, partly why the Supreme Court rushed to complete Bush versus Gore on the 12th of December back in 2000. The decision halted the count of ballots in Florida, handing the presidency to George W. Bush. The 1887 law establishes a safe harbor. You've been hearing that term, a safe harbor date so that states conclude their vote counts and establish electors early. Uh, that was on the 8th of December. That was last week. Well, the, And states are uh, given great latitude as to how they go about deciding their electors, um, but they are, in fact, chosen. Well, that process uh, took place. Um, we've heard a lot about the Electoral College, whether or not it should stand. We've heard a lot about whether or not faithless electors should be permitted to cast their um, their ballots, their votes, if you will, in um, in different ways. And so it's been rather interesting to observe history in the making as it relates to a U.S. election. So what happens after today? Well, states begin to send in their states, their slates of electors, ballots to the U.S. Capitol over the next few weeks. The papers sent to Capitol Hill are certificates rather of the vote signed by the electors of each state. They are mailed via registered mail, yes, the U.S. mail, to the President of the Senate, the Vice President of the United States, the Secretary of State, the archivist of the United States and the federal district court with jurisdiction over where each uh, set of electors convened. At least um, one, there's one story where congressional officials had to come into the Capitol on Christmas Day several years ago because one state sent paperwork that wasn't proper in form. But the proce process isn't quite over. This brings us to the ultimate decision of who a president 
um, who is president on January 6th. It's up to the 117th Congress to, uh, as dictated by the 12th Amendment to the Constitution. Lawmakers will certify the electoral results in a joint session of Congress, and that process continues in the days ahead. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And when we return, we'll have a conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist, On the coming of the Messiah, is that just an arcane concept? Do we really need a Savior? I mean, it's the 21st century. We'll get into that and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you haven't noticed, we're right in the midst of the holiday season, as it's so often referred to, with Christmas just days away. It's a busy time for us, but in 2020, with the pandemic and all the changes that we have faced, there are a lot of questions about, you know, should we celebrate Christmas and how should we go about it? Well, I am just delighted that we've established something of a tradition in that we call Pastor Scott and he agrees to join us, uh, at least at some point during the uh, the celebration of Christmas, and he's consented to join us here again this time around. Uh, Pastor Scott is um, the senior pastor at Southwest Bible Church. He's also the teacher of the downtown Bible class, and I've asked him to join me to talk about the coming of the Messiah. As we consider, is it still relevant in the midst of a pandemic? Is it relevant in the 21st century? Do we still need a Savior? I mean, think about the technology and the capacity that we have to accomplish great things. Uh, Is this an important story for us here and now? Pastor Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Georgine. It's good to be with you, and I'm happy to celebrate the birth of Christ with you. Well, let me um, just take a moment and ask you about how the pandemic has impacted downtown Bible class, um, because at this time of the year, you would typically have a celebration that would include music and a meal and so on. How has uh, this pandemic impacted the ministry into our downtown Portland area? Well, it actually has been pretty severe impact. Uh, we were we've been unable to meet uh, physically down down at the art museum ever since March when the shutdown occurred. But actually, I'm I'm encouraged that uh, the word is still going out thanks to the radio. And I've been actually someone mentioned it to me, and I'd been thinking about it. Uh, Right over the last three or four months, not knowing, of course, that COVID was coming, no one did, but I'd been thinking about doing some short videos. And as soon as uh, the lockdown occurred, why I started putting out two to three minute videos each day. And I've been doing that for the last nine months also. And so anybody that wants that can get on that on uh, Facebook or Twitter or just get on our email list. And uh, that's been reaching a lot of people with encouragement and also evangelism, you know. So uh, downtown has changed, that's for sure. Uh, but these are circumstances that the Lord has uh, allowed to come our mm-hmm. way, and, and I'm encouraged that the word of the Lord still goes forth, and he's still on the throne. And I heard you mentioning, should we celebrate? And I know you were asking it rhetorically, but I'll answer you, yes, we should. We should <laughs> celebrate the birth of Absolutely. Christ. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm in the middle of a Bible study. I'm studying um, the book of Genesis, and of course, that's the book of beginnings. And I've, uh, I'm always struck, even though I've read the Bible many times, I've been a follower of Jesus for many years, I'm always struck as I trace God's meticulous plan to prepare for and ultimately provide a Savior. So many generations, uh, so many mm. twists and turns in history. Can we begin there talking about the fact that at the very beginning, with the fall, 
God declared that there was a plan for salvation for mankind. And just the, the time from that moment, this, the beginning of history, to the coming of the Savior, that babe in the manger, um, is just a, a fascinating story of God's faithfulness. Can you talk a little bit about just that history that began at the beginning? Sure. I, uh, You know, the book of John opens up by saying that Jesus Christ created everything. So uh, it and it's it's written in such a way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. So he's intentionally throwing our attention back to the where the Bible begins, uh, the book of beginnings, as you said. And Genesis is a wonderful uh, account, and you learn so much just about every truth about Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, is articulated either in prophetic form or imagery, uh, types, that sort of thing, in the book of Genesis. And uh, as you mentioned, he began as soon as sin entered the picture, which is in my Bible on the second page, chapter 3. As soon as sin brought its ruin and, and, uh, you know, death and despair, why God began to promise a deliverer. And Genesis... uh, gives you so many good uh, pointers toward Christ that come to fulfillment when he comes uh, at his birth and life and ministry and death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, so I, I love the book of Genesis. And actually, I was just thinking the other day, there's only four chapters in the whole Bible where sin isn't uh, present. Mm. Uh, there's two in Genesis, and there's two the last two, the first two and the last two, the last two of Revelation, when Jesus Christ returns and the hallelujah chorus is unleashed, and when he sets up his kingdom, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, why it's it's such a symmetry and such a beautiful fulfillment of all the longings that uh, have been in our hearts ever since Adam and Eve sinned. I'm so struck by the promises that God makes early in Scripture, his timing, which is puzzling to us so often, but it's always perfect, his careful planning. Even Jesus' genealogy, how we see that woven throughout Scripture, it tells us so much about God's heart for humanity, even though we were, uh, since Adam's sin, Adam and Eve's sin, we were conceived in sin. His heart has always been for us and to make a way for us to be reconciled to him. That's just amazing to me. Yeah, it really is. It really is. This God who who spoke, you know, the world into existence and sustains the universe, the galaxies. Isaiah says that he he counts the galaxies and he's named all the stars. Uh, you know, such knowledge is far beyond us. This God cares for us and immediately uh, began to promise, as you said, this Savior, and this Savior would be his only son entering this world of sin and woe and actually giving us the victory over sin and death. So it is an amazing thing, and it's an amazing, the details that he gives uh, when you mention it in the book of Genesis, you know. This Mm -hmm. time of year we address things, uh, Christmas cards, that sort of thing, and and it always kind of is a reminder to me that with three lines, maybe four, you can get a message uh, to anybody in the world. 
in snail mail, you know, their name, their street, their city, and uh, their country. And and email, similarly, you can, you know, everybody's got an email. And uh, the scripture zeroes in on Jesus Christ from the beginning. He's going to come from the seed of the woman, he says, right at the beginning. He'll, he'll be a man. He'll be born of a woman. And then he'll come from a certain nation, Abraham. Genesis 12 starts to promise. And then it won't just be from Abraham, but it'll be Isaac, not Ishmael, you know, mm-hmm. and Jacob, not Esau. And of all the 12 tribes of, of Israel, Jacob, why, uh, it won't be Levi. It won't be, you know, the other tribes. That he'll be from the tribe of Judah. And then you come to the book of Revelation at the close, and he is indeed the lion from the tribe of Judah. And so the detail is, is astounding, and it's, it's an apologetic. And when I use that word, I don't mean apology. I mean it's a, it's a strong evidence of the hand of God on this book, but also on history. Just the, the uh, people ask me, why do I believe the Bible? And why do I believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, one reason is because he was so thoroughly predicted in the Bible. Uh, God, God put his thumbprint or fingerprints all over the Bible by saying, I'm going to send my son and he will be born of a woman. He will be born from a certain nation, a certain tribe, a certain family within that tribe, David's family. And then, of course, as you already mentioned, uh, the first page of the New Testament, Jesus' genealogy, he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. So you just, it's like, wow, what an amazing drama that unfolds. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it reminds us that when God makes a promise, uh, you can believe it. He can be trusted. His word matters. <laughs> and his it reflects his character <laughs> that when he says, when he says something, that will come to pass. The timing may be surprising. It may seem longer than we expected, but God's word is true and he's faithful to his word. Boy, isn't that the truth? And I actually just preached uh, the last three Sundays on that little phrase. I was preaching the whole text of Hebrews 10, but the phrase that uh, I used for the title, He Who Promised is Faithful, part one, two, and three, the last three weeks. And it just has been on my mind that you can take it to the bank when he says something, he's going to do it. And sometimes it takes centuries. Uh, You know, I think of Simeon and Anna and the beauty of the account of Jesus' birth and they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were hoping and waiting, and they've been waiting for centuries. Mm-hmm. And unbelief uh, ridicules that. And and today, you know, we want things instantaneously, and we don't wait for centuries, let alone, you know, uh, we don't want to wait for days, months, years. <laughs> but uh, these these men and women were waiting, and when you wait on the Lord, you'll never be disappointed. Uh, and so after centuries of promise, he who promised is faithful, and he Amen. sent his son to this earth. Amen. We're talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist from Southwest Bible Church. He's also the teacher at Downtown Bible Class on the Coming of the Messiah. And if you've been looking for a place to worship on Sunday mornings and you don't have a home church, I would like to recommend Southwest Bible Church. I know I've enjoyed going to different congregations, but every week, with the exception of these last three, because 
uh, my sister and I um, were leading worship at a different church. We have been <laughs> sitting in. My mom, my now 90-year-old mom, looks forward every week to sitting in to hear you speak at Southwest Bible Church. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist from the Downtown Bible Class. He's also the Bible teacher at Southwest Bible Church. We're talking about the coming of Messiah and just marveling over God's Word and the fact that He would reveal His His heart, His intention to us early on in Scripture, and that we are from the vantage point looking back that we can see that His uh, his word was true. He kept his promise. Now, if you and I wanted to communicate to the whole world, we would probably wait for Super Bowl Sunday. We'd spend an enormous amount of money to buy one of those ads. <laughs> People would be talking about it before the game. They'd be talking about it after the game. We would publicize it in such a way that everyone would be uh, made aware. And yet God chose a very different way to introduce the Messiah into humanity. Jesus' birth was, for those who were in close proximity, something to behold. There were angels that appeared, that, you know, God directed the uh, the shepherds and so on to that location. I've often wondered why such a quiet event took place as opposed to informing the whole world with some spectacular show. Any thoughts on on um, how quiet the incarnation of Christ, this this huge event in human history was such a small event witnessed by so few? Well, you know, lots of times when I get asked a why question, I, I uh, find myself unable to answer. And, I'm, and I often encourage people to not ask the why questions other than to trust in the character and mm. good purposes of our Lord. But, you know, as you mentioned it, I this morning... I've been, uh, our church, we're going through the month of December. Each day we take a prophecy in the Old Testament and the fulfillment in the New Testament and just transcribe them by hand. Uh, And so this morning I was in Isaiah 42 and I was struck with the the, uh, quietness of our Savior, that he, I will put my spirit upon him, he wrote to Isaiah, He will bring forth justice to the nations, but he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. So he didn't come, like you said, with a lot of pomp and circumstance, and he didn't come with the typical way we would think of a deliverer coming in. He will come back that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Isaiah speaks of his return. He will come and every eye will see him. But he came the first time quietly, as you said. Uh, there was certainly an announcement. And in fact, I think that announcement, we maybe sentimentalize it a bit. I think the, the sky broke forth into who knows how many millions of angels singing. But it was an amazing announcement. But uh, Jesus came humbly the first time to give his life for us. He's coming back uh, to reign as king, and he will be seen by everyone. And in the meantime, God has commissioned you and me, Georgine, and anyone else who knows him to uh, tell people about him. And I That's right. I was listening to a, a man pray this morning. Uh, oh, I would guess him to be 45. And he was his prayer was he thanked the Lord for bringing someone to him at his high school locker. 
uh, right in front of his high school locker to tell him about Christ. And I thought, wow, that had to be 30 years ago. But he was so thankful for that one who faithfully, I don't know whether there's a friend or someone who just talked to him, or, but I, I don't know the details, but I know that he is forever thankful for the good news of the great joy that was brought to him by a fellow sinner who needed a savior. Oh, what a, what a great picture of um, the role that you and I can play in spreading this great good news. I think about the yeah, wise men. Think, we, please go ahead. Well, I was just thinking you, you mentioned uh, that you hear my voice, you know, weekly and I, and I hear you often and I'm so thankful that you're daily uh, proclaiming Christ. Uh, and it's, it's a privilege to know that we, we can and, and in fact, he commissioned us to, and people are, particularly during this season, there are people really coming to know Christ uh, mm-hmm. because we've all sensed our need, and there's a lot of despair and discouragement and questioning. And we who know the Savior, uh, we're not immune from these circumstances, of course, uh, but we have the privilege of knowing the one who's in charge and so now more than ever, if your listeners right now, I know there are those listening who, who really don't know Jesus, uh, have heard about him and may be interested in him. And I just speak to you right now. The Lord Jesus can meet your every need. If you're discouraged, his Holy Spirit is called the encourager. If you're thirsty, he's the water of life. If you're dissatisfied, he's the only one who can really satisfy you. And, of course, uh, all those types of things and many more are wrapped up in this word that we uh, celebrate, Savior. He is indeed the Savior of whoever will call upon him. So it's a privilege to uh, to proclaim him. There's a... Um an element in the story where there are magi who come from the East and they are following mm-hmm. a, an astronomical phenomenon uh, in the sky. Your thoughts on what they might've understood about the birth of the savior, what they were following the star in order to find. And we know there are other characters who understood that a Messiah was going to be born and there was concern among some and, and anticipation among others. What do you think the magi were anticipating they would find by following this um, astronomical um, spectacle in the heavens? Well, you know, I don't know that we can know the full details, but we can know that they were specifically, I mean, when they got to to Jerusalem, they went right to the king, King Herod and, and said, we're looking for the king of the Jews. They knew the king of the Jews was going to be born uh, via this message from God in that in that uh, special star, and how God communicated that to them, you know, I don't know. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation and how what kind of a phenomena that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, each year I hear different thoughts about that, but I I personally think that the one who hung the stars in the heavens and uh, created the galaxies, why he he just prepared a special revelation. And uh, they were looking for the one who would be born king of the Jews. And they said, we've come to worship him. So they knew that he was more than just the king of Israel. Uh, They came to worship. And that's always proper only, but only proper of worship of God. Uh, 
We're not to er- worship earthly kings. Uh, we're not to worship angels. Uh, in fact, in the Bible, when well-meaning people, sometimes in just the awe and splendor of an angelic being, fall to worship, why uh, the angel says quickly, get up, don't worship right. me, worship God. So they came. We know they knew that he was the king of Israel, and we know they knew that he was God incarnate because they actually came to worship. And then actually when they got there and saw the child, the Bible says they fell down and worshipped him. And I love that uh, clear, simple statement because I oftentimes ask people who say, well, I believe in God. Uh, do you Do you worship him? Do you worship him? And uh, when you come to understand what he did for you on the cross, that he came not to merely live in a palace, he came to give his life a ransom for us, why the only reasonable response is to fall and worship him. So I think the wise men are a great pattern for us. And whatever they knew, they made good use of that knowledge. Absolutely. We're talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. He's the teacher of the downtown Bible class. He also is the pastor of Southwest Bible Church. We're talking about the coming of the Messiah. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Scott Gilchrist, pastor at Southwest Bible Church and teacher of the downtown Bible class. We're talking about the coming of the Messiah. Now, we're modern people. We live in the 21st century. We have seen innovation that is unparalleled in all of human history. Is the concept of a savior, it may seem sort of arcane in the 21st century, who needs a savior after all? We can pretty much fend for ourselves. If we haven't yet invented it, it's just on the verge of being invented. What do you say to those who consider the idea of needing a savior, a savior from what, uh, is relevant in the 21st century? Well, you know, honestly, uh, I I know I meet people like that, and I talk to people who are self-sufficient, but I've uh, been around the block enough times to realize that I think there are fewer and fewer people that don't recognize our need, their need. Uh, It This this, uh, world where we have amazing technology and uh, we, that hasn't solved our problems because our problems really aren't, uh, you know, physical or even intellectual, uh, our deepest need, our deepest problem is a spiritual problem. And I meet people, in fact, I I bump shoulders with them all the time that have made a lot of money, seen a lot of success, uh, accomplished a lot of goals, uh, got every electronic gadget, and, and yet there's something missing inside, and there's an emptiness. Because we, unlike every other creature in the universe, God created man, male and female, in the image of God. And there's a longing within our heart. There's a, there's a, a need to, to be right with our Creator and to know Him. And so, actually, I, I, don't, uh, I don't think that, that, there, that all the progress we've made in technology and stuff, we find that it's just, uh, you know, it continues to backfire on us, too. 
Mm-hmm. About the time we're excited about online banking, somebody hacks our account. Or, or, you know, there's the sin issue doesn't go away, both externally and internally. So I think uh, when I talk to people, I I uh, I just let them talk however they want about that. But but I know that even if they won't admit it deep down inside, they know they need uh, something much more than they can get from from technology or money or pleasure and all the things that are kind of false gods out there. Yeah. In fact, I think this pandemic has sort of leveled the playing field, if you will. If we thought we Hasn't had it? control over uh, over our future and what's going on in the world, I think we've been disabused of that that notion. Talk about what it means, uh, what a Savior is. What is Jesus saving us from? What does it mean that he is the Savior of the whole world? Well, you know, you you mentioned you've been in Genesis, so I'm sure you're well aware. And I I think the the theme of of the Savior starts right there in Genesis, mm-hmm. because God is holy, and God uh, gave Adam and Eve this perfect environment in those first two chapters, and said, "You can look at all this. I've given you all these trees and this beautiful paradise." There's only one thing I don't want you to do, and that is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of that tree, he warned, you'll surely die. And uh, to step away from God and to disobey him and to fail to love him, why, that's what Adam and Eve did, They and they died spiritually. And that's this inner longing that I was mentioning. They didn't die physically. They were still robust. They lived uh, back then before the environment went south, why people were living hundreds of years. But uh, they didn't die physically immediately. They didn't die emotionally. But immediately they were messed up, and they were ashamed of themselves and not seeking God but actually hiding from God. And they experienced guilt and the inner... uh, wreckage that sin brings. But uh, that's when God made this promise of a Savior and said, I'm going to send a Savior to deliver you from this sin. So that theme of Savior uh, gets started right there in Genesis, and it's it's so relevant today. We're mm-hmm. still in the same situation. We cannot uh, save ourselves. Uh, and as you said, the pandemic is a great leveler. And uh, it's a kind of a reminder because death has always been a great leveler. Yes. Uh, I always get a kick out of people saying, how much was he worth at death? <laughs> you know, and we amass, we amass a fortune or an estate and we say, how much is, was he worth when he died? Well, the, the irony of that statement, uh, no matter how rich you are, no matter how powerful you are, death is a great leveler. This pandemic's a leveler. And this pandemic, of course, I think it's gracious that God has kind of stirred us to remember that history is full of plagues that are much more deadly than this one. And it's just a reminder that uh, God has kind of brought the whole world to its knees, so to speak. And I'm praying for the vaccine and I'm praying for deliverance from you know, and I, I just, uh, a good friend of mine just got out of the hospital with COVID and is home today. Uh, and I'm very thankful 
for that. But these are reminders that uh, we need the Lord. And my friend actually, he wrote me a, an amazing text from the hospital bed. Uh, he's a man steeped in the scripture. And he he wrote of how he was short of breath and the misery of, of laying there counting his breaths and watching the monitor count him, you know, and that sort of thing. But he he'd, he'd done a lot of reading in years past, and his, his mind is just filled with God's Word, and he was talking about how God is the author of breath and life. And he, he said, you know, back in Genesis, God gave us our first breath. And Job says someday he could just inhale, kind of one big inhalation, and withdraw the breath from mankind. Uh, because we we... We depend on God for every heartbeat, for every right. breath. And so it's a, a good reminder. And then to know that there is this one who not only is willing to give us life and give us breath, but came and proved his love for us in that he died on a cross so that we wouldn't have temporary life or a life that'll end after 60, 70, 80, 90 years, your mother's 90, mine's 91. I rejoice that God has given them long lives, but we know this life will come to an end. But Jesus said, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. As he stood in a graveyard, he said that. So eternal life isn't just religious lingo. It's what we long for, and uh, God is going to give to anyone who will call to him life eternal. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the good news of the great joy that the angels announced and you and I are still talking about today. Absolutely. Well, I certainly learned when I was rather young that I was in need of a Savior, and I still marvel that God so graciously, even as a young child, Uh, He heard my heart's cry and began the relationship that I have enjoyed ever since. And to be reconciled Mm -hmm. to God, to be able to walk with him, to walk without fear of the future, um, to to have his word. It's such a a great comfort uh, to know him and to know what the future really holds. So in answer to my own question, I I needed a savior and I found him in Jesus Christ. And it wasn't a one-time event. He he continues to be my savior. I trust in him. I rely on him. I lean on him. He is my my joy and everything that I I need. Every breath as you pointed out. Uh, every inhalation mm-hmm. and every <laughs> every time I breathe out. <laughs> yeah. He sustains that yeah, for me. And he, he's the he's the only person I know that the more I get to know him the more I love him. Yes. I've never found a flaw in him, you know, and you haven't either. And you, so you said he wasn't just a one-time thing. He just gets better and better. Yes. And uh, what, a, what an amazing uh, attribute of God in the flesh, this one who came and became man so that he might be our Savior. Amen. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're talking with Scott Gilchrist, pastor of Southwest Bible Church, teacher at the Downtown Bible Class. We're talking about the Messiah as we anticipate coming together on that singular day in which we acknowledge that it was an historic event, that Jesus was a physical child. He grew up on this earth and accomplished everything God intended. We'll continue in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm having a conversation with Scott Gilchrist of the Downtown Bible Class. I wanted to ask you um, to talk a bit about the incarnation of Christ. If you, As I've been reading uh, Genesis, I, I have come to fully appreciate what it meant to be the second person of the, the Godhead, the Trinity, and for Jesus mm-hmm. to humble himself, to come to this earth for the sake of our uh, redemption is just a, an amazing thing. But can you talk a little bit about the incarnation of Christ, that he was fully God and fully man for the sake of accomplishing God's purpose promised way back in Genesis? Yeah, it. Uh, you know, he is indeed the mediator. Uh, Job longed for that. Job's the oldest literature in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And Job was longing for one who could put his hand on God and man. And uh, Jesus is just that umpire, that mediator, that one who can. And so I don't think we'll ever understand it fully, but we worship him because God was willing to come and become man and dwell among us. And he humbled himself by taking on flesh and limiting himself to where he he experienced uh Everything we do except sin. So he knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be uh, tired. He knows what it's like to have people betray him. He He's fully man, and yet he's fully God. And uh, that is that is the central truth of, as you say, the incarnation the uh, the words behind that, the enfleshment, that God would take on flesh and become man. So uh, we'll never fully grasp it, but the more we mull it over and the more we think on it, the more we worship him. And God isn't a distant power out there that doesn't understand me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm teaching the book of Hebrews right now, and the author of Hebrews underlines that because he's man, he understands our situation. He knows what it's like. And I've been struck with just about every circumstance that I run into in life. Jesus knows something about it. Uh, and he knows more about it than I do. I've, he knows what suffering is. He knows what it's like to be scoffed at and laughed at. They were scoffing him even as he hung on the cross dying for them. And he, they said, well, we'll see if he's God. He'll come down from that cross. We'll see if God will deliver him. And instead of being delivered, Jesus had to cry out right there in front of the people scoffing him. The sky went dark and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Bible says, and it's quoting the Psalm, Psalm 22, that they wagged their heads and they just thought, look, God has forsaken him. And that's the kind of Savior that you and I celebrate and worship. He didn't just die. Uh, Peter stood up on Pentecost and said death could not hold him. It was impossible for death to hold him. He conquered death and rose again. So we can't really talk about Christmas without talking about Easter. That's right. This Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again. He conquered man's biggest enemy. And he he conquered it so thoroughly that uh, the Bible says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, 
Where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? And the, of course, the answer is, for the believer, there is no sting in death. Death, for a believer, will be just being whisked right into the very presence of God because every one of my sins has been paid for. All of them were nailed to a cross and were bore in his body so that I don't have to bear them. What a gift we have received. You know, we think about Christmas and exchanging gifts with one another, but for those who have received Christ, we have received a gift that is unparalleled. It's unrivaled in human history. There's nothing of greater value than what Jesus has offered us. Uh, in himself, that we could be free from the penalty of sin, that we could have access to the throne of grace into which we are invited to come boldly. I mean, these are treasures that they they don't really um, compare to anything else in human experience. They really don't. I we, we had the privilege of baptizing a young gal, probably 23, 24 years old uh, Sunday, and she told her story, and she was, uh, as so many people, she was raised in sort of a nominal, the family would have said they they were uh, Catholic, but they didn't really go to church, and they just it was just name only. But she said by the time she was in middle school, she was filled with anxiety and depression. And I just thought of how many young ones are like that today. Their family came apart, and she was, she'd been through a lot of pain, but in her teenage years, uh, God spared her life in a horrific accident, and she uh, she knew that God had spared her life, but she really didn't know him yet. And then about a year ago, uh, a friend of hers invited her to church here, and she heard and about Jesus Christ and, and believed in him. And she said, I, I want to be baptized today to just bring glory to him and just to confess him publicly. And, you know, no matter how many times I've heard that, my heart just thrilled as she gave that testimony and was was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And uh, I never get tired of seeing the deliverance that a Savior brings to a life. I'm grateful that December 25th, which is when we... Uh, acknowledge the the coming of the Savior, um, that even today in the 21st century, he extends that uh, that invitation to every one of us who uh, don't yet know him, that he would he would invite us to come into his presence to receive the gift of salvation um, by faith through grace. And uh, what a what a tremendous thing that that continues um, these many years after the historic event of his birth and ultimately, his um, crucifixion and resurrection. Boy, so am I. And it is just a wonderful thing. And, you know, I think of those of us who know him. Uh, we've lived through this year like everyone else. And there's, I know that believers are tempted to discouragement and, and uh, depression even. But I got to tell you that uh, we need to daily recalibrate our minds and fix our eyes back on our Savior and realize we don't know how many days we have, but but I know that he who is coming will come again and will not delay. And it seems to me that this year has taught us that uh, the time is short and we need to use the days we have 
to point people to him and point ourselves. I every morning, you know, spend time with him and recalibrate my own mindset. Mm -hmm. This I recall to my mind, Jeremiah wrote, in times of real trouble, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What an amazing Savior we have. Yes, O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Mm -hmm. Pastor Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today. It's always such a delight to me personally, but also I know to our listeners. Thank you. Well, Georgine, thanks so much, and you have a great Christmas, and uh, we will be celebrating with you. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Scott. Good night. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Hey, well, we're out of time. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is our producer, Clark Hilton, our engineer, and Dan Rice. I'd like to thank him for the use of his office. Thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Join us tomorrow. We're going to be joined by the general manager of KPDQ and several other Portland stations, Dennis Hayes. We're going to continue our conversation about the coming of the Savior, so I hope you'll join us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.